You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. Now, Go Wild is the ultimate app for hunting and fishing. Their mission is to create and curate a community where outdoorsmen and women can engage, interact, and learn. There's no BS, no politics, just good, wholesome conversation about what drives us hunting, fishing, and exploring the wild. They are built, they're, they're building a community and a platform that is integrated part of the hunting and fishing process. Go Wild is immersive online experience that is completely catered to the outdoorsman lifestyle. Every aspect of hunting, fishing, scouting, shooting, canoeing, camping, hiking, whatever. Go Wild is the place, right? It's the place for you. It's a place to join a community of like-minded individuals, and you're not going to get scrutinized for posting a harvest picture or your love of guns. Go Wild was designed for outdoors men and women for outdoors men and women. So check it out today. Wherever you download your apps, go wild or visit timetogowild.com. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. Yeah, I've worked, oh man, probably 20, 28 hours since yesterday. Oh man. So I'm I'm exhausted. I'm ready to go to bed and it's only 5.30. Well, you can go to bed after this podcast. How about that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was the plan. So I was like, as early as possible, the quicker I get to sleep, the better off it's going to be. Yep, I'm kind of in the same same boat. Well, not nearly as bad as you, but I've been basically trying to get into work really early and then going hunting in the afternoon on a couple of these days because we had a big cold front move through. So I haven't been getting as much sleep the last last few days since we got <laughs> back from Utah. Yeah, that's a that's a good kind of sleep lacking is after hunting. Seeing a lot of deer. Well, that's good. Yeah, so I mean, I think today. What I really wanted to discuss was basically bow hunting in October in general and kind of how things have transitioned now from September and the things that have been happening in September and the food sources in September. And now, you know, there's there's sort of this thing that, you know, some people believe in the October lull, some people don't believe in the October lull. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and reading a lot of information about GPS deer studies and, and how the weather impacts all this stuff. So I think it'd be kind of interesting just to kind of dive into some of these these various factors that are going on right now and how that's affecting the bow hunting in October. Yeah. 
sounds like a good plan to me. I mean, here it is mid-October. You know, this is when most people start to believe in the October lull is basically from now through the end of the end of October, basically to the pre-rut. Right, and depending on where you're at in the country, that that can vary a little bit. Obviously, usually, it seems like in the upper Midwest here, toward that last week of October, that's when guys really start to to start getting out into the woods and and starting to see you know pre-rut activity and start setting up over scrapes and all that. But I don't know. I I follow a lot of guys that knock down some really nice deer and they do it all throughout October. I think it's yep. less about, you know, the time of year and, and the phase of the rut that's going on and more about actually just getting on a specific deer. And there's a lot of guys that would much rather, if they're going after a specific deer, get it done in October or even September if the season's open then, as opposed to waiting during the rut when they might go on an excursion someplace else. Yeah. I think the October lulls kind of come from you know, it's kind of the calm before the storm, if you will. So it's the movement before the rut. So most people see the rut and think that is, you know, all the movement all the time they're on their feet during that amount of time is, you know, the norm basically. So that's what they're expecting. So even though the deer are still moving this time of year from now through, you know, Halloween, basically, you know, they're not as move. They're not moving as much as they would during the rut. So most people think of it as a lull in activity, but in all reality, it's probably the same amount of activity as late September, early October, mid-October, you know, compared to that November time frame. Well, and the other thing too, is I think one of the things that kind of bookends that lull on the front end is the fact that guys are seeing deer out in the fields, out in, you know, the soybeans out in August, early September, and all of a sudden they just disappear. And if guys are hunting yeah. field edges, it's like, what happened? So It's a transition time, whether they're transitioning from, you know, the early season food source, acorns start dropping in October, you know, so it's a transition time on top of that. So like you said, they're hunting old food sources, basically. So they're still hunting what, you know, soybeans that were hot three weeks ago. And they're like, well, where'd all the deer go? Well, they've transitioned food sources. So they're associating that with, well, it's the October lull. You know, there's no point in me hunting. Right. I know for me, I've, I've been kind of bouncing back and forth at, in terms of where I've been hunting, marsh versus, you know, hill country, since I've gotten back from that uh, public land challenge. And it was pretty clear during that challenge that a lot of the deer down there that we were seeing, at least, even though there's a lot of acorns around, a lot of them were still feeding pretty heavily on the, the crop fields. And since I've been back home, you know, I've been reaching out to even drive a little bit further than I normally have to try out some new marsh country. And one of the places I went to, I had scouted, it was the same place I found that shed I showed you the picture of. And I paddled in a mile and a half upstream to get to this remote little island. And you could tell like it was, there was a lot of deer sign there. Some of it was fresh. It was like just fresh enough where um, I couldn't necessarily pass it up. But at the same time, it wasn't like on fire. It's kind of one of those places where it's like, okay, well, I'll give one set here and then I'll move down the transition line another few hundred yards the next night. But I tell you what, man, I got back at like 11 p.m. It took me so long to, to get out there and get back because <laughs> it was like an hour and a half drive. And then that paddle on the way in, I didn't time it, but it must have been an hour because on the way back, it took me 26 minutes and it was a pretty stiff current. So I'm sure it was a lot longer on the way out. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, then kind of by by luck the next day, when I was planning on going back, I uh, wasn't able to get out of work as early as I had the day before. 
And so I went to a place that was a lot closer and ended up finding some really hot sign there. So now I've been just kind of systematically picking that apart. But um, as far as food sources, it seems like for the most part, the acorns are still there, but they're, they're starting to wind down. They're definitely not as, as heavy as they were earlier in uh, the season, say September, for example. And a lot of the, the white oaks, especially, I was starting to see some of those drop in mid-August around here. And there's still some on the ground, but it's a lot of just empty shells at this point. And most of the trees, you look up in the canopy, there's not a whole lot still hanging. So for the most part, they've, they've all fallen down. So now that kind of means the, you know, the corn's dry now. I've seen a lot more uh, cobs of corn, like on the edges of fields that are eaten up by deer. I'm seeing a lot more sign on those field edges. So I think for that transition standpoint, I think the deer are still probably hitting some of those last remaining acorns, but now they're starting to transition too to getting back to those fields. But I think they're, for the most part, still doing it, you know, after dark by the time they're getting there. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of that varies on where you're at. You know, you're further north. I know, you know, back in Missouri right now, they're still, it's still dropping acorns and acorns are still what a lot of people are hunting on there, um, hunting over flats and stuff like that, that have good, good mass trees in them. Um, you know, so like you said, depending on where you're at, you know, basically throughout the U.S., it's going to be later in the year, you know, further south you get compared to the further north like that. You know, the corn there, you know, typically right now, they're still not even close to being ready to hunt on the corn, you know, for the most part. And, you know, my family's been hunting on acorns and been seeing quite a few deer, so. How late do the acorns usually keep dropping down by you? Um, Probably till, probably I'd say another two weeks week and a half or so that still be dropping um you know most of the deer like when i was in virginia from about october 6th through october about 26th was the best time i had hunting acorns in that part of the country um that's about the same latitude i guess as missouri it was just a couple degrees north or half degrees minutes rather interesting yeah because on our opener this year september 15th i mean it was just raining acorns about that time of the year and we had our first snow already this weekend. I got some video footage. It's almost a whiteout from all the snow we were getting. I think, look, there's a big band going from, like, across the southern half of Minnesota and, and a little bit of Iowa even in western Wisconsin. And we had some yeah, sub-freezing temperatures. I had some ice Pretty on the early, that's already. for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's still right now colder than average, which is part of the reason, too, I've been trying to get out as much as I can. Um, but, yeah, I mean – the deer movement, and that's another thing I want to talk about today too, is, is deer movement in relation to cold weather or hot weather or other other types of patterns. Um, but I've been seeing deer, I think, every evening that I've been out since I've... I didn't see anything when I went to that marsh, but since I came back to the hills in this past week, I've seen deer just about every set. So, so what are your thoughts on... Um, cold fronts this time of year or hotter days or cooler days uh, in this mid-October to late-October time frame? Well, I've always sort of believed that cold fronts, cold weather in general, tends to get deer moving a little bit earlier, tends to get them up on their feet. And a lot of that is just kind of based on just general knowledge throughout the deer hunting community, right? Because for the most part, this is all linked to observations. You're talking with guys, what are guys seeing and and all that stuff kind of gets ingrained to you as you start hunting. And then as you continue to hunt. So I can't necessarily say that I have a large enough personal data collection where I can tell you that I saw this many deer 
over the course of X number of years on hot days versus this many on cold days. I just know that, um, if there's going to be a big cold front hitting, I'm going to try and get out into the woods if I can. So have you looked into any like GPS research based off of weather to determine whether GPS data backs up your thoughts and belief? Cause I know a lot of, a lot of hunting is just that it's based off of a hunter's perception of what they see compared to what the sciences can tell us basically. Yeah, I have. And most of the GPS studies that I've looked at or heard about tend to suggest that it doesn't matter what the weather is and that you just got to be out in the woods. So, I mean, if it's like a weekend, it doesn't matter what the weather is. I'm going to try and get out in the woods, whether it's hot, whether it's cold, whether it's windy, whether it's calm. But it's more so, you know, kind of those weekdays where it's like I might be able to get out, might not. The cold front might push me over the edge, but it's like, is that really the best determining factor? You know, obviously if it's going to be 60 degrees, it's going to be more comfortable than if it's 80 degrees. But on the flip side of that, as it gets later into October, if it's going to be 30 degrees, it's not going to be as comfortable as if it's 50 degrees, right? So there's a little bit of back and, and a forth, lot of it, but, um, a lot of it's also what, what gets you more motivated to hunt. You know, obviously the more higher spirits you are to actually go hunting, mm-hmm. you know, so this time of year when it's, you know, 80 degrees in most places still, or tapering down in the seventies, you get these cold fronts that push through that are in the sixties and fifties. It gets a lot of people geared up to get in the woods and then they're spending more time in the woods where they might see those deer come through and associate that with the cold front. When in all reality, if they spent that much time on those 70, 80 degree days hunting, they would probably still see proportionally the same number of deer. Right. And there's that, I was listening to a podcast recently. I think it was a down South hunting podcast where he interviewed a bunch of guys that had GPS data in regards to weather patterns. Um, and a lot of the guys, like you were saying, they, they don't see a correlation, a statistical correlation when they look at the weather. And to that point, you know, guys are out in the woods hunting when it's cold. Then they see deer, then that reinforces that the cold weather might be better if, if they don't have that hot weather as a control. On opening weekend when I shot my doe, it was probably 15, 20 degrees above average on that day. And I was the only vehicle out there. I don't think anybody wanted to hunt because it was 90 degrees in Minnesota. 90 degrees is a really hot day. So, right. so there's that. But I, I think too, there's so much, there's so much anecdotal evidence from guys that do hunt a lot in all types of weather conditions to say that there, there might still be something to it. And even, even when, uh, in the, in those podcasts, when they would ask the people that had the GPS data and they would say, well, as a, as a scientist, I say it doesn't matter, but as a hunter, I'm still going to be out there in a cold front. Exactly, because it gets the person motivated to get out there. You know, even though, like you said, you can look at the statistics and there's no difference. There's no statistical difference in the temperature having an effect. Um, but as a hunter, it gets you geared up more. So you're going to be like, well, yeah, there's a cold front coming through. I got to hunt. You know, it's like almost a sin to miss a cold front to miss hunting in a, when a cold front pushes through in mid to late October, basically. But here's the other thing that I, I don't know if I gathered from the studies and maybe I got to just dig in and find, read all the actual research methods, but it seemed like everything that they were looking at was movement in terms of meters, usually correlated to a certain weather pattern. But I don't know if that data set was filtered for daylight versus nighttime activity. 
like say for example, you find that on cold fronts, deer moved X number of meters. And when the temperatures were higher, they moved X number of meters. So from that data set, you would say there was no difference. But if, right. the, if the cold weather deer moved that those meters when it was still daylight and the other subset moved, you know, an hour later when it would have been after dark, that's maybe not as statistically relevant from a movement standpoint, but it's hugely relevant for, for deer hunters who can only hunt during daylight. Right. And so what you're wanting to look at is, is that movement pattern based off the weather daylight affected? So right. do, are they moving strictly during daylight when the cold front comes through? Are they moving more during daylight when the cold front comes through compared to when the cold front is not there basically? Um, and I don't know specifically which study you're looking at or which one has looked at that. Um, but I do know, like, I know, I want to say it's Penn state has done a lot of, a lot of this research in Pennsylvania on GPS tracking deer. And a lot of times, if you look at it, those deer are move, still moving a lot during daylight hours compared to, you know, evening or nighttime. Um, but I do know they do bed down for the most part, but they still will move around 20, 40, 60, 80 yards around their bedding area a couple times. And they may even move into the bedding area later in the morning. So, mm-hmm. well, I, I tell you what, when I was out last night, I was set up on a, the, basically like the transition line between like a ravine and a point. And there was a bunch of buckthorn up on the point. So it was super thick. And I was able to get 50 yards away from essentially the knob of that point, And I set up and hour and a half before dark, I saw a four corn up on his feet, milling around, feeding on leaves. And then he just disappeared. So I, I, I wonder if that deer had just gotten up from his bed. If I was within 60 yards of where he was bedded, he got up, milled around for a couple of minutes and then went and bedded back down because I never saw him or any other deer again until, you know, it was time to get down. So yeah, daylight activity, that daylight activity maybe isn't as good as if, you know, when did he make that movement to get up to the acorn flat, to get up to the field? That's kind of the, the big trigger. And I think that's probably... It's harder to pinpoint when you look at the data, unless you're actually looking at the individual data points that those researchers have available to them. And I think that's where a lot of this hunting the bed comes in more this early October through basically pre-rut, because you're getting closer to where those deer are bedded. So you're hoping that when they stand up to feed within 40, 50 yards of their bed, you're that close already compared to, you know, later in you know, November around the rut, you're hunting these funnels and transition points because you're just assuming there's going to be more longer distance deer movement during Mm -hmm. that time than there is during the rut or during the pre-rut basically or late October. Yeah. I guess. So from the other weather perspective, wind, I personally like it when it's windy for that type of hunt better because I'm able to get a lot closer and set up when it's really windy there's, there's still a lot of leaves on the trees, so it's making it even noisier versus if it's calm and I, it, it's tough, especially if you got a forest floor that's littered with sticks and stuff and you're trying to sneak in close, it makes it hard. But if you got a wind, that really makes a lot of, a lot of good cover. And see, that's, that's something to me that, you know, I would like to see more research and it'd be tough to do research on that is, you know, kind of you know, how close can you get to a deer? Say you have a GPS deer. And, you know, you walk by it at 80 yards. Does that deer get up and move just solely based off of the noise that it might have heard? You know, can you do a pass at 
150, 100 yards, 50 yards, at what point does the noise of you being in the woods disturb that deer? Yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to imagine that probably be very dependent on a lot of variables. Um, I do too. I mean, obviously public ground, private ground, highly pressured. Right. Um, you How know, much noise you're making the... if you're just, if you're just going through a stroll, going for a stroll through the woods or. Yeah. And what direction, is it a direction where they're used to people coming from? Is it a direction where they've they're not used to people coming from? How much do you sound like a squirrel? Can they see you? Can they smell you in addition to hearing you? Right. And I think a lot of that, like you said, it's so variable, it's hard to do. But, you know, for the most part, and again, this goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about, you know, just a hunter was, it's all based off the hunter's observation. You know, when I grew up, my dad didn't care about, a deer hearing him we would walk through the woods and you know we may sit down and five minutes later there's a deer or two minutes later there's a deer walking by us you know so obviously for me that correlated for me a long time ago i'm not as worried about noise even on a calm day as on a windy day if it's calm or windy i'm still going to go it doesn't matter i'm going to be out there walking through the leaves at the same pace making the same amount of noise and to me i don't think it affects the deer as much but it's a hard thing to research to figure out yeah. So on, well, what was it? Friday, I think it was. We had another kind of windy day and I was walking into an oak flat that was really close to some bedding. And I was about 40 yards from the tree I was going to set up in roughly two hours before last light. And I was, I spotted a, a doe and a fawn feeding on the, the next ridge over 45 yards. And so I was almost able to get a shot. There's a little bit too much foliage in the way. And then, uh, the doe ended up smelling me and they, they took off, but because it was windy and because I move so slow when I get within that realm of where I'm going to set up, it almost becomes more like still hunting. And I think there's occasions like that, where if I was just walking normal pace to that tree, I probably would have kicked those deer out because they would have seen me before I saw them. Yeah. And could very well be, you know, but you got to think just when you're in the woods, how many squirrels do you hear, you know, how well can deer distinguish the difference between a person walking and a squirrel walking i mean there's so much going on in the woods in my mind that you know i think it would be difficult without some secondary type of association such as visual or mm-hmm. a scent cue to say okay that's not what that's not a squirrel you yeah. know obviously if they hear something they're going to start looking in that direction you know the more you're walking the more likely they are to see you as you're walking but like you said once you get down into almost that slow still walking phase you know they could write that off okay i heard something i looked over there for two minutes didn't see anything now i'm back to browsing yeah well i think about it a squirrel is generally speaking very distinct if you hear a squirrel if you've if you know what a squirrel sounds like it's easy to tell if it's for sure a squirrel sometimes it's not super easy but you know they they kind of have that little way about them where they just kind of scurry for a little bit and then pause and then scurry for a little bit and pause whereas deer it seems like if they're browsing or something, it's like they take a step, they browse, they take a step, they browse. It's kind of more of a slow, still hunting pace. And I think a human walking at a normal gait is so much different than a lot of things in the woods, except for a deer that's also happens to be walking at just a fast pace and not browsing, trying to get from point A to point B. Right. So it's, it's like, I can think of so many times during the rut when a buck is just, just traveling and it's like, you can hear something coming. It's like, okay, that's either a dude walking through the woods or that's a deer. <laughs> Yeah. Um, whereas like this time of year still, it seems like they're moving very slow for the most part. 
kind of more like a still hunting type of pace. So I try and I guess make myself sound more like deer pace this time of year, but it's not so much just the sound. It's, you know, me trying to be observant as I get closer to that tree. And see, to me, can deer, can deer process that audio difference the same way we can? I mean, obviously we can be like, okay, that's a squirrel. Listen for it to hop, you know, take two steps, hop again, where, you know, can a deer process that in the same way that we can? To yeah, me, that's what I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. But I do think, I would assume that they can process the difference between leaves rustling and a stick snapping. Yeah, I would it's, too. It's like, I mean, even if those those little small twigs that are laying in the dirt, it's like you hear one of those on stands, like, oh, I know that wasn't a squirrel. It's either a deer or something else that was heavy enough to break that stick. And for most part, like you said, with squirrels, we process kind of the pattern of noise. Because it's like scurry, scurry, you know, short hop, short hop, big hop. And then, you know, scurrying in the leaves. Whereas, you know, so it's almost a pattern that we hear. Whereas a deer is just like a ch, 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 and it stops. You know, so can the deer process the same pattern-based noises as we can? That to me is, I know there was some research done out of the Mississippi State Deer Lab, maybe, or one of the deer labs down there about frequencies in which deer can hear. And I think it was low level frequencies were better than high frequencies. And that kind of goes along with like grunting. That's why grunting is typically so low. Mm -hmm. Um, Bleats are lower, things like that. It falls within the deer's range of sound that they can hear the best, basically. Interesting. Can they hear at a lower frequency, do you know, than we can? Are there potentially noises that we make that we're blind to, but a deer can hear? ah, Man, I don't remember the study off the top of my head. I don't think so. Um, I think... A lot of people assume that deer can hear so much better than people, but based off the study, it's actually pretty similar. Um, I think they, like maybe they're that lower range of noises, they can hear a little bit better than we can. Um, but for the most part, if I remember correctly, we can hear within the same frequency ranges. Gotcha. Yeah, I almost think the things that sound more like deer to me than squirrels are mice and sometimes songbirds. <laughs> songbirds are bad. That they are, they are pretty rough, um, and it's cause especially because you can't see them half the time. You're like right, looking right. around. You're <laughs> like, it's it sounds huge. Where the heck is this thing? And you're looking right over it like a dozen times, and it's like, oh, it's like ten feet away from me underneath my tree. And even if you got know. like a dozen of them making a ton of racket in like a little tree or like on the ground next to you, it's like. You can't not look away. You know that it's not a deer. You know it's birds, but it sounds so much like it could be a deer. You can't like force yourself to look away from it. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing what your mind will do to you when you've been sitting on the stand for a while and especially haven't seen anything. You know, like turkeys. Sometimes turkeys coming in. It's like, all right, there's somebody walking in under me. What is going on? And then it's like there's a turkey twenty yards away, and you're like, oh crap. Yeah, I heard a couple of them yesterday. I didn't see them. It's too thick. One thing that I've, so you know how I said for trail cameras, I set out a bunch of trail cameras this year and, and, and I wasn't going to check them all year. Yeah. So I ended up, I hunted past one of my trail cameras on one of these oak flats and I pulled the camera on my way back out and it was a camera I had set up in July. And, uh, so obviously I had July through beginning of October data and man, late August through early September on that oak flat, I think I had like six or seven different bucks over 110 inches. Wow. B- biggest one was probably 
I don't know, 140-ish split brow tines. Big deer for public land. But the yeah. thing that was really interesting was, you know, kind of when they're all bachelored up in velvet, through early September, I was seeing a lot of these deer multiple times a day, any time during the day, 10 a.m., 2 p.m., didn't matter. They were through there all hours of the day. Then afterwards, you know, once the velvet came off and they started to split up, I was still seeing a fair number of those deer at different times. But for the most part, the bucks were, they had transitioned to kind of moving dusk or dawn or very early or very late at night uh, under the cover of dark. But the does, on the other hand, they were still all hours of the day. They could have does moving by 11 a.m., noon, during the open season. Even, you know, late September, early October, those does are still moving all hours of the day, which I thought was really interesting that they were doing that while the bucks were not at that point. So do you think that had to do with the correlation of the loss of velvet and the testosterone and hormone change in the bucks that pushed them from that, you know, daylight similar to the does to more of that nocturnal daylight dusk movement? Well, I'm sure it had... It has to do obviously with them breaking up from their bachelor groups and instead of getting three bucks on the same trail camera picture, now you're getting one at a time. I'm sure that played a, a lot into it, but, uh, I don't know if that also played into what time of the day that they were traveling or not. The other thing I thought was interesting too, is on that Oak flat, there was still not really any sort of pattern to what they were doing, which obviously on a food source like that, you're not, the data isn't going to be as, as consistent as if it's really close to like a specific bed. But it's like, ideally, you'd like to be able to look at the photos and kind of correlate, okay, well, this deer only comes by on a northwest wind or something like that. But it wasn't right. even that regular. You know, it was, it was kind of really sporadic. So I think that I, what I might do is, on this particular property, I might put out, you know, four or five more cameras in specific locations that I can just kind of leave up. And then at the end of the year, I will have a lot more of that data that I'll be able to kind of correlate and from that information, then use that next year to be able to say, okay, now I know kind of how the patterns transition through late October into the rut, post rut, and then be able to make a game plan the following year. So if I get pictures, I kind of know what's going on and where they might be betting. And like you mentioned with Oak Flats, you know, that's the hardest part about them is it's almost like a widespread, you know, for even bean fields, they tend to, you know, kind of go towards the corners the shaded areas areas like that whereas like an oak flat it's the same all the way across they feel secure because they're in the timber you know one day they may be here the next day they may be 70 80 yards away it's really hard to pick there's nothing that forces a deer to go to a specific spot unless it is just a certain tree that the deer seem to favor you know a larger tree something like that in that oak flat otherwise you know you're just setting up and hoping one of these deer is going to walk within 40 yards of you right yeah that, that's totally the thing it's like you're pretty much just getting into a spot it's almost like one of those spots in the rut where it's like you got you can try to cover as many trails as possible it's like you're trying an oak flat you're trying to like pick a spot where you can maximize the amount of your your shooting diameter because yeah. you never know where it's they're like going to walk through exactly I'm going to climb this tree right here in this oak flat because I can shoot 45 yards in any direction. I have no idea where the deer is going to come from or feed to, but I just know I can cover a lot of ground from this spot. Mm -hmm. The only thing I don't like about this, this whole hill country thing is even right now, it's like if you get a wind direction, it's like, man, it doesn't even really hold that much weight. It's like you get up on that oak flat that's near 
those ravines and stuff, and it's like that wind goes every direction at some point or yeah. another. Yeah, people plot out these, well, on a you know northwest wind, I'm going to hunt this stand. And may have never been there on a northwest wind and just, you know, assuming by looking at the topographical map, it's a great place to hunt. And they get out there and the wind is 180 degrees the other direction or 90 degrees. And they're like, what, what, what's going on here? You know, because there's so many variables that affect the wind direction and specifically in areas like that, you know, that I, I think it's so difficult to read wind on a you know, just by looking at a map and everything else and look at the prevailing wind, when you get in there, it could be so different. You've got to be in there and do it time and time again to figure out, okay, you know, on a northwest wind, this wind is actually kind of southwest. Yeah, I had a west wind the other day, and I got into the spot, was getting ready to set up, and the wind was clearly coming from the south. And every once in a while, I would switch and go 180 and come from the north. And then when there was no wind, then the thermals would kind of drop down and take it to the west. So it was like it was really hard to predict. And the one thing that would never really was, was the direction that the, the weather app said it was going to be, you know? Yeah. And I get a kind of a giggle and a kick out of these, um, scent cone apps or maps or whatever they are, where you, that basically put your spot and it kind of shows which way your scent cone is supposed to blow. Mm-hmm. Well, like you just said, you know, that wind could switch 90 degrees to the left and 90 degrees to the right. And you just covered your scent in you know, 180 degree area, basically. So it's it's so variable depending on where you're at, um, and just you know the edge of a field, in the timber, on the edge of a ravine, next to a creek. There's so many factors that affect wind. Yeah, it makes it really tough to get close to bedding, because you just can't count on a reliable wind direction. You might be good for three quarters of the hunt, and all of a sudden it switches, just once Unless for a couple seconds, yeah. and that's it. That's all it takes. Unless it's a hard front blowing in, and yep. you know it's going to be a you know, a 10 to 15 mile an hour sustained west wind or whatever and get in there and hunt on that wind and know it's going to, for the most part, until that front blows through, it's going to be steady in that direction. Yeah, and what makes it tough too is a lot of times this time of year in October, there's still enough leaves in the trees where you don't want to climb too high because you lose a lot of your visibility. But if you, you hunt low, then you're really susceptible to those changing breezes and stuff. Whereas like later in the season, you can climb a little bit higher, take advantage of getting hit by more of that prevailing wind direction and not have to worry about the swirling so much, but it makes it tough this yeah. time of year. Yeah, because you got to stay low just to keep your visibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there's – obviously there's a lot of, you know, pros and cons or controversies regarding trying to practice scent control, but it's like it's like if you're going to try and do it, like that's a pretty good type of habitat to try and do it in. Yeah, you can go to the extreme of ozone and – carbon and everything or you can just go well screw it i'm going to my hunting clothes Mm -hmm. you know so it's you know one or the other basically there's there's everywhere in between including so yeah so we still got a lot of days left in october and i think what my plan is for this particular spot is just to kind of i'm hunting a different spot every day there's enough knobs and you know little areas that could be good and places where i found bedding in the past that I'm just picking them off one by one and just systematically kind of moving throughout the property and not going over or past areas where I haven't already hunted. So basically if I got like a long point that has like three little knobs along the edge, I'll go to the first one, like the first day. And then if I got the same direction, wind direction, I'll go to the next one the next day. And so I'm always going to areas where I haven't gotten my ground scent in the area. 
So it's always kind of like a fresh hit to the most part, even though I'm, I'm oftentimes walking out of the truck the same direction, you know, for the first quarter, half mile. Right. I mean, I, like I said, it seems to be working. I'm seeing a lot of deer. It's just a matter of, you know, when the, the cards align that I finally see, you know, one of those big ones that's around there. Yeah, I think, well, I'll be in Missouri in uh, nine days, nine or ten days, um, and I'm going to be there for two weeks. And I think my plan when I get there is I want to hit the ground running on some public land and try to find some pretty active scrapes and, you know, kind of go from there looking to depend on where they're at and where I think the deer are going to be coming from and try to hunt. I've never really hunted scrapes a whole lot in my life, but I think I'm going to try to hunt them harder over that two-week period than I have before. And then as it gets closer into the rut, into pre or pre-rut into the rut, I'm just going to go back to hunting just transition points for the most part. Um, I will be doing some sitting on a food plot shooting does while I'm there too. So, Yeah, I've, I've seen a decent number of scrapes already so far, but a lot of them that I've seen on that, that type of property has been field edge stuff. Or I might have a long 100-yard stretch of cornfield. There might be like four scrapes that are all getting hit fresh, but, you know, it's all nocturnal stuff for the most part. I haven't really seen a ton so far in the woods close to bedding, but once that stuff starts popping up, especially as it gets later and later into October, yeah, then that stuff is, is definitely stuff I'm going to try and key in on too. Yeah, I'm going to stay in the timber for the most part, um, kind of in the hill country timber and cruise some of them old logging roads that are overgrown for the most part and see what I can find on those. Uh, and, you know, kind of once I have them kind of figured out, marked out on a map, I'll go back and look, try to get an idea of where the deer might be bedding um, and specifically just try to hunt the transition from there to the scrapes. Do you find that a lot of times those deer down there in that Missouri rolling hill country is, I guess it's not really rolling, it's fairly steep in some spots, but... Um, do you find that they oftentimes will utilize those old logging roads for travel because of the ease? Yeah, just because of the ease. Um, it's a little, I mean, it's not overly thick for the most part, but the roads were built on easy corridors um, and transition points. So for the most part, if you can find an old logging road, the deer, if it crosses it, it's going to want to go down it. Uh, you know, a lot of the deer that we've killed out of there have been off of those um, slightly overgrown, just to the point where nobody has drove down it for probably five to 10 years, small saplings up in it, things like that. They'll just tend to gravitate to it. Gotcha. Yeah. There was a place in Northern Minnesota where buddy and I used to hunt that, you know, it's just kind of that rolling maple and Aspen type forest, um, you know, with, with evergreen swamps down in the, the low areas and you'd have those little like logging roads that would go through and they would always have deer moving along them, even though it wasn't too difficult to walk throughout the rest of the open hardwoods. A lot of times they would gravitate toward that, and that's where you'd see a lot of the scrapes. Right. And it just kind of gives them a, a trail or a path to go down because most deer, like we talked about, you know, in that hardwood, those deer could go any which direction. doesn't really matter, but this kind of gives them a defined path to want to go up and down. So most of those bucks will tend to get on those, make the scrapes, because it's a, a pathway for them. Yeah, and like you said, a lot of times those logging roads are there because they're easy for a vehicle to travel because – of the terrain and what makes it easy for a vehicle makes it easy for a deer. Exactly. So then at what point do you think you're going to stop sort of hunting over scrapes and start strictly hunting over those 
transition or those uh those hard funnels or terrain features where you're really going to be looking for chasing is that going to happen in november for you down in missouri or late october uh, do you think that's going to start happening it'll probably be end of november um end of november you know, it's into no november oh. not end of into um <laughs> it'll be you know probably not until probably the 7th to the 14th or so the last week that i'm planning on being there will i really kind of start to transition unless i start to see more of those deer just utilizing those funnels while i'm there um it'll be that last half the last week basically i'll start to hit those uh, heavy transition points more and more okay yeah, I, th- I think for me, it, it kind of depends. I mean, it seems like the biggest bucks that we usually see cruising around here usually happens, it seems like, later in November. Like, I should just say mid-November. Um, the just historically usually seems like the, the time when you get one deer that's just on a mission. He's just walking slow, and he's going from point A to point B, and it's a big one. It seems like... Even in late October, sometimes we'll get smaller bucks chasing does already. Um, and that kind of continues, but yeah, it seems like the biggest ones always seem to move a little bit later. Yeah. I mean, obviously they want to conserve as much of their energy as possible. They don't want to be out chasing and nosing non-receptive does. So they're going to, they're going to sit and wait and be more patient before they get up and start moving. Um, but you know, a lot of that's variable on the deer in the area. So like you said, depending on yep. the area for you guys, it seems to be later in the year. Um, some areas may be earlier, you know, for the most part kind of around the family farm there, it's from about the 10th to the 20th. So right around the Missouri firearm season is typically when we've seen the bigger deer up on their feet, um, and pushing. So. Yeah. But I think up until that time, it's like even the first couple of days in November, it's like I could I could sit on those type of areas and probably see some deer moving, see some smaller bucks cruising. But I feel like, you know, it's like if I still want to have the shot at some of those bigger deer, it almost pays just to keep hunting them like I have been during October. See, and I go more towards the I want to catch that the early buck, the one that's like, yeah, well, I'm going to get up and check, you know. Yeah, it's probably a little early, but I'm still going to get up and check. And that's kind of what I'm looking for is on the front edge of that. Um, mainly because I'm not going to be there during the, the firearm season. Uh, so I'm trying to get those ones that are on the front edge of that, that may not, they may not be your really big bucks, your five and a half, six and a half year old deer. But if they're going to be your three and a half to four and a half year old deer, that's like, yeah, it's getting close. I need to go check the beds and see, see what it's like and try to catch those deer in those transition points. Yeah, I think, um, what I'm probably going to start doing as it gets later in, in, into October, maybe this weekend, perhaps the weekend following is what I'm going to really try and do is sort of like we were talking about last year with the in-season scouting. As I get closer to some of these bedding areas, but I imagine I'm going to start finding some of these uh, scrapes that are starting to open up. Not necessarily the community scrapes that have been going on for weeks already, but the ones that, Hey, there, this wasn't here yesterday and now it's here. And this happens to be close to bedding. I want to, I got to sit here now. That's kind of the thing. I think I'm going to try and key in on as this gets later into the month. So as we get later into the month, closer into November, what are your thoughts on calling, rattling, blind calling? I mean, obviously most people will call to a deer if they see it and like, 
you know, you see a buck cruising 70 yards out of range. Most every hunter out there throws everything, including the kitchen sink at him to try to get him to turn. But what are your thoughts on just blind rattling, blind calling? Uh, do you do any of it? Do, are you still trying, because you're so close to the bedding area, you get them pass on that? Well, I've tried it enough times over the years and not had it been successful that for me, it, whether it's a matter of me just not knowing how to do it right, whether it's, you know, picking the right call at the right exact time or, or whatever the, the scenario happens to be, I've always had much more success just by being in the right place at the right time than I have by trying to pull a deer into me. I've never, I think once I've been able to see a deer call to it and have it turn directions and come my direction. So, you know, for me, I think a lot of it is just try and be a fly on the wall. Don't let the deer know you're there. Let him do what he's going to do naturally until he realizes that there's an arrow in the side and it's too late. You know, try not to draw any attention to myself. See, I've had really good success calling to a deer, grunting to a deer, basically. But I blind calling or blind rattling, I don't even take rattling antlers or horn or a bag or anything with me to the woods anymore. That's I've done it. Never had any success with Like I've scared more deer than I've probably had come to me because I don't think I've ever had a single one come to me. Uh, but calling to a deer, I've had multiple times where I've seen a buck, you know, across the food plot, uh, across the pasture, grunted to it, and 30 seconds later it's standing at eight yards. And it's like, okay, that was quick. A little yeah, too Sh- quick. Shane has some videos doing that in Wisconsin where he's hunted in some, like, not really, like, open uh, CRP type areas where you can see hundreds of yards in certain directions. He'll call to a buck and he's had a turn and come right to him. But I just, I've never been able to really replicate that myself. Yeah. The the first deer I can remember that stands out to me was the first deer I shot out with an Osage orange self bow. I had just got set up in my saddle and my bow, my possibles bag, my jacket, everything was still attached to my bow rope on the ground. And I look up, and this buck is coming across the field. So I just jerk everything up to the top of the tree with me, grab my grunt call, and he was 160 yards away. And you could tell he was he was cruising. He was like a two-and-a-half-year-old buck. Um, and he was cruising, and I grunted at him twice, and probably within 15 seconds he was less than six yards from the base of my tree. And I had my bow, my jacket, my possibles bag, everything just clustered up in my hands like, well – that didn't do me any good because now I can't even <laughs> do anything. And I actually, that deer stayed around so long, I was able to lay everything over branches and get an arrow knocked and actually shot that deer. Um, but I didn't get very good penetration with a four blade on a traditional bow, Osage Orange. Yeah, it's too many blades for a softball. <laughs> yes. Well, there was a Zwicky two blade with bleeder blades Bleeders. on it. Yeah. And I hit it like it was six yards away and I shot it right up against the spine basically and it didn't get but maybe three inches of penetration. Was that the deer um, that caused you to switch to to the two blade single bevel? Yep. That was him. So when you called that deer in in particular, were you in open hardwoods or were you in an area where with enough understory that he couldn't necessarily see that there was no deer where that sound was coming from? So I was actually in a transition point in a field. So there was a pond behind me. I was setting up in some sweet gum trees kind of on the back side of the pond bank. And it was an open hay pasture, basically. But there was a thicket about 
35 yards straight south of me. Um, so kind of the pasture kind of bottlenecked down to this little spot. And a lot of times what these deer would do is they would kind of cross the pasture to this thicket, then come up the thicket to the pond and drink from behind me. So this deer had came out of the thicket and was walking kind of northwest away from me just through the wide open field uh, when I seen him and grunted to him. And he came all the way to the basically the wood line at the base of the pond. So I'm guessing he thought there was a deer on on the pond bank, the other side of the pond bank, which was behind me, and that's why he stayed around for so long. Gotcha. Yeah, I would always assume that, you know, if I were going to continue trying to call for a, to a deer, you know, it's kind of like the same principles you think of when you're turkey hunting. You don't just set up in the middle of open hardwoods and, and try calling in a turkey. He's going to hang up on you. It's like you try and get to those spots where he has to get within shooting range before he finally can tell that, you know, maybe, okay, there's the decoy, or maybe you're not running a decoy, and then you really have to make sure he needs to get around some kind of obstacle or where, where he can't see where that sound's coming from. And I would assume that if you were in some kind of brushy area or taller grass, weed, CRP, that type of thing, you'd probably have better odds overall, I would guess, than if you're in an area where literally you can see for 80, 100 yards on the ground level. Yeah, and I think a lot of it also, you know, it just has to do with the mood the deer's in. Um, you know, if, if it's in a fighting mood, obviously it may come running. Um, even though it can see 90, 100 yards, it's mad and just wants to come over and see what's going on. But then, like I th- like you said, I think if you're on the front edge of that where the deer's still cautious but kind of interested on what's going on, you have to have that terrain feature, the thick brush, something to be to pique his interest enough to want to come over and take a look to see if he can see around that to find that deer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to make the most sense. The other thing right now is, is for me too, my uh, little pouch that I carry all my utility strap stuff on, that little Kuyu hip belt pouch. Yep. So all my stuff fits into that little pouch real nicely when I don't have the ground tube on there. But once I add the ground tube, it's like a struggle to get that th- all that stuff in. So a lot of times <laughs> I'll, I find myself just leaving the ground tube at home um, rather than stuffing it into my pack, which would be totally fine too. So do you carry a, like a tree saw or a pruning saw or anything like that? Uh, usually I don't because technically it's not allowed. Public land. Right. But yeah. what I what I often do is if a branch is small enough to break with my hands or at least bend behind another branch so that it gets out of the way, I do that a lot. I think a lot of times too it seems like, uh, you know, we were talking about the sound discussion earlier. Sawing isn't a very natural sound running a ratcheting pruning shears isn't really a natural sound <laughs> breaking a stick it's it can be alarming but it's still like a more of a natural sound dropping a branch from the top of a tree is a natural sound stuff's always falling from the top of trees you got squirrels knocking stuff out and laying it on branches and breaking them and stuff so I, I don't really get concerned that much about like snapping branches to to make sure i have enough space in the tree yeah that's something that you mentioned dropping the tree, the limb out of the tree. Man, I remember hunting with a guy in college that freaked out one time because I was dropping tree limbs from a tree. And he's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to like hook those on other limbs so they don't fall to the ground. And I'm like, man, it's raining acorns around here. What do you think? What do you, I mean, it's natural if something falls out of the tree. And we were sitting there and I don't know, it was like 20, maybe 25 minutes to dark. 
and like 20 feet away, just a full limb just snaps and falls out of the tree and hits the ground. And I look over at him and his eyes are like as big as dish plates. And he's like, I've never heard that happen before. (laughs) It's like, it happens every day. You just got to be in the right spot at the right time. I heard a tree fall down last week when I was out in the woods. Yeah, some of the things you hear out there make you wonder. It's like, why did that tree fall? Yeah. The other thing, too, I was just thinking about in like regards to the, uh, the noise and what deer can perceive. I think if they just hear something, that's, in my mind, that's like the, maybe the weakest kind of spook. Like, if you spook a deer and he hears you, but he doesn't see you and he doesn't smell you, I feel like that he's like the most likely to come back to doing whatever he was doing if he spooked in that kind of manner versus if he if he sees you and tells is able to see that you're a human. I think that's a little bit more powerful. I got no scientific data to back this up. <laughs> and I feel like if he smells you that's like the worst. Yeah. I would tend to I mean maybe not I would put the sound and seeing at the bottom for sure. Um you know did a deer fully see me? Did it just see something that was out of place? I'm not the deer. I couldn't tell what he saw. You know, you read studies on how well deer can see, what can deer see, and there's studies that basically say they can see movement really, really well, but they have very, very blurry vision. So could that deer tell it was a person and not another deer, or uh, was it a coyote? You know, what did it think it saw, basically? Um, and like you said, if that's reinforced by it smelled something, then I think that's obviously the worst. And like you said, sound to me, because I've walked by deer before, and the deer just watches you walk by and was like, okay, I'm just going to continue to eat in this acorn flat. And it's just like, well, he didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So. Yeah, but maybe some of that, too, is when you're talking about kind of the whether you're just doing a normal pace walk through the woods versus you're trying to be nice and slow. I I have noticed that a lot too, whether it's me just walking out after dark and you're walking right past deer that are, you can see their silhouettes or, or you can, you know, kind of hear them milling around and it's like, okay, well, if it was light out, I'd be able to see those deer standing there just watching me walk by. I think a lot of times if they don't think that, I don't know if they can, you know, consciously make the distinction that they know that you're not danger because they don't know, or they think that you don't know that they're there. You know, it's like if you're just walking, you don't even act like you're going to slow down. It's like when you see a deer on the, the side of the road and you're driving your car and you drive right past, they don't do anything. But if you slow your truck down and stop on the side of the road, then they bolt. Yeah, I'm out. And You know, that was kind of my dad's philosophy for a, a while. I guess when I was in college was he, he basically said deer were trainable. So he would literally go for a walk around the property, through the property, three to four times a day and he would bring the dogs and everything else and the number of deer he would walk by the number of bedded deer he would see bucks included um you know it just got to the point where the deer like all right yeah he's just out for a stroll no big deal and so when they got out and he was hunting and you know they smelled him they didn't think anything different because they see him four to five times a day basically and was just like all right yeah nothing new that's what shane did a couple of years ago and he he would go out and check his trail cameras like two or three times a week. Always walk the same path. Always, you know, kind of at similar times of the day. Times of the day where it would be normal for him to go out and and get ready for an evening hunt. 
it works. I mean, it worked well for my dad. I mean, there's just nothing you can't really argue with it. I mean, they're, I mean, obviously urban deer, the urban deer for a reason, they're get pretty accustomed to things really quick. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same principle, just are trying to urbanize country deer basically. Yeah. It's a little bit tougher when you, when you live an hour away from where you're trying to hunt and they put on the gas miles pretty quick. Yeah. Or when you're in heavily pressured public land and any deer that stands still gets shot at. Yeah. And they're just like, I'm just not going to stand still. I'm either going to be running or sleeping. And so there's no doubt that the public land pressured part of it has a lot of effect to it. Cause I mean, where I'm going to go in Missouri, some of the public land there is just not pressured. I mean, unless it's pressured by the people who hunt the edge of it, which they're typically only gun hunters. Um, you know, the, those deer there are not pressured whatsoever compared to you go to like a conservation area or, you know, somewhere that's actually pretty good, like reform or somewhere like that in Missouri, you know, those deer are pressured and they know what the heck's up. I think oftentimes, at least what seems like the norm in a lot of the places that I go to, you get a lot of the guys out there that give that public land pressure. A lot of times they're still doing sort of similar things each time they go out. They might have a particular spot that they really like to go to and they'll keep hunting it over and over, or they might have a couple spots that they go to. I still think there's a very few number of people that are actually staying mobile enough that they're literally hunting a different tree or a different area every time that they go out. And sometimes you get people that'll just randomly throughout the season, just do a big scouting trip and just go through every nook and cranny of the land. And I think that that kind of goofs things up for a couple of days, but I think the deer kind of go right back to what they were doing beforehand. Cause it, it seems like such a, a, you know, kind of like a freak incident to them where it's like, okay, well that was, that never happened before. And now it's, you know, the sense going away, he's not coming back here. So let's just keep doing what we were doing. Yeah. You know, we've seen him that we've seen him one day, you know, we haven't smelled him since then. We haven't seen him since then. It was just that one particular day that he was here. No big deal. We're going to go back to our rotation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like people in a car accident on a road. You know, if you, there's a car accident, you have to go around. When you come back that way, you're not going to go around again just to because you assume the car accident's there the next day. You're obviously going to continue about the way you would normally go about it. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm getting pretty, pretty excited. I think, I think uh, this year I'm going to have more time in the woods than I did last year, and I think I'm already at a point where at least in this property that I'm, I'm trying to focus on over the next few weeks, there's enough sign of, of decent deer around. I think I'm going to start to, to get on some good stuff pretty soon. It's just a matter of time. And then that's I'm, all it is. And then of course we got the, the Missouri stuff too. So I'm hoping to, hoping to be able to try and fill some tags before heading down to Missouri. Yeah, I've got, all my stuff is scattered across the floor right now and trying to get it organized and packed up and mailed back, I guess. So that way I'll have everything I need there. So I don't forget nothing. I've got stuff there. I don't know why I'm sending packing stuff and sending it, but I guess you're always just prepared for the worst. Yep. Yep. So we'll have to, we'll have to keep on top of that trip to figure out when I'm going to come down and, and meet you down there. 
Yeah, definitely. I think I'll be there the 25th through like the 13th or 14th. Um, so anytime within there when it fits your schedule, you drive on down. Sounds good. That'll do it for this week. As always, make sure to give the Podcast Network a review on iTunes. Follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and wherever you stream your podcast episodes. Bobby and I are both using Arrow Hunter tree saddles. Whether you're already a hardcore mobile hunter toting around a lightweight stand for miles in search of overlooked spots, or you're simply looking to reduce weight from your current setup, a hunting saddle can be a great option to look into. You can find more information and ordering instructions at arrowhunter.us. As always, thanks for listening.